you know, you kind of have to go in with the mindset like, I want to make a difference in this world. I want to make a difference, not just in this company, but I want the work that I do to affect the world in a better way than it was left before. Welcome to the What the Heck Do You Do Career Podcast, an inspiring look into the everyday jobs of everyday people. Hi guys, welcome back. I'm not even going to do an intro because I'm just too excited to jump right into this. You saw the title of this episode. We're talking about rocket science. Yes, all the jokes come to mind. It's not rocket science, but it is rocket science. And we have Michael Batty here who's going to tell us all about it. So what's up, Michael? How's it going, everyone? Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Carol. Very excited to have you. So tell us something that we've all, I guess, wanted to know from when we were little kids and you hear about rocket science. What the heck does a rocket scientist actually do? So most rocket scientists actually help make the rocket and, you know, send it off into space or put it on a jet and, you know, make sure the aerodynamics are good on the design, make sure the thrusters have enough thrust to send this thing forward. I make a specific component on rockets, which is the sensors. Uh, I make pressure sensors for Coolite Semiconductor. Um, what I do for them is I design dynamic, specifically pressure transducers. Now what dynamic means is instead of having a steady pressure in one area, you have maybe fluctuations. And so lots of things can happen when you have fluctuations um, that could actually either disturb the health of a rocket or make sure that it goes the way it's supposed to go. And so those sensors ensure um, control systems on the rocket. They ensure um, that you know all the software that's going into it has checks and balances um, and that the rocket's gonna do what you want it to do and, it won't blow up when it's not supposed to. <laughs> nice. I just need to pause, even before we get a little bit more nitty-gritty into the job, because I think as Michael's talking, this probably seems very, like, scary and intimidating. So I want you guys to know a little bit about Michael. He's not scary and intimidating. I mean, he's very smart, but you meet him and you don't get the vibe of, like, oh, my God, this guy's a genius rocket scientist. Like, he's and like, I'm not, just so you guys know. <laughs> no, he's, he's, you have to be generally intelligent, but you don't have to be, like, that nerdy person that we think of as a rocket scientist. Like, Michael's very fun. He likes to do fun things. He's goofy. He's childish. So it's just good to know, even before we jump into all the nitty-gritty of the cool things that he does, don't be intimidated. Um, you know, you don't have to be what we think of as like, oh my God, a rocket scientist to be a rocket scientist, I guess. Yeah, that's true. All right, so tell us about, maybe to conceptualize a little bit more of what you do, a project that you worked on and what exactly you did. So a project that I work on that I've been doing actually for the last five years um, is I prototyped a sensor for a combustion engine. And that sensor is supposed to survive in extreme environments is what they call it, um, which means really high temperatures, like, you know, 2000 degrees Celsius, um, and high dynamic pressures. So that's, you know, if you guys are familiar with the ranges, I'm going to say PSI, which is pound per square inch. Um, so like 50 PSI. Uh, and sometimes that's in your regular everyday environment, which is what we call ambient, you know, which is about 15 PSI. And sometimes that's in a very highly elevated environment, which is about, you know, could be up to a thousand PSI. So that's, you know, magnitude of like 50 times or 20 times your current, you know, living environment. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to, like you said before, you're trying to make sure that it can withstand extreme, you know, elevations, I guess, pressures. And so it doesn't blow up when it's going out into space or doing whatever it's doing. Yeah. Okay. So this might be a dumb question, but 
why do they need to do that over and over again for different engines, different products? Like, why can't it just be one thing that's just it's universal, it's the same no matter what? So when it comes to engineering something, everyone has their own design, right? You go to GE and they're going to make a different engine than if you go to Rolls-Royce, right? Mm -hmm. So because they have different engines, different sizes, different temperature ranges, different pressures, they have different uh, casings and different geometries, and your sensors have to meet their requirements for those spacings and those environments. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they want to measure differential, sometimes meaning two different pressures at the same time to give you what that in-between pressure would be. And sometimes you want to measure just one pressure in a, in a tank, let's say, and that's an absolute pressure. Um, so you, you kind of have different needs in every situation, even in the same engine, and definitely different needs in different engines. Right. So I guess we have to kind of go back and just remind ourselves that with engineering, we're creating, we're, we're making something. And like you said, everybody has different designs, different needs, different wants. And so I guess each engineer, depending on what type of engineer they are, is creating something different. Which of the different um, engineers do you fall under? Which category? Uh, I fall under electromechanical engineer, though I studied mechanical and aerospace engineering. Mm -hmm. how, how did you decide that was something you wanted to do? So it's funny, actually. I'm going to talk about my college experience really quickly. I wanted to go to school at an architecture school. Mm. And I wanted to go to Maryland. It had like a top 25 in the country, and it was a state school, so I knew I could get in. And I, my mom was basically like, if you want to go there, you're taking your own loans. And if you go to in-state school, I'll help you pay for that. And I was like, uh, okay, I guess I'm going in-state. She goes, you can go to NJIT. I'm going to say something that may be controversial for this podcast, but I thought of NJIT and I said, what's the guy-to-girl ratio at NJIT? <laughs> Not very good, so let me go to Rutgers. But Rutgers didn't have an architecture program. So I was like, okay, I'll do civil engineering, and then maybe I'll get a master's in architecture. So when I got there, one of my friends uh, that I was rooming with, his name is Seth, very smart kid, went to Hillel Yeshiva with me. Um, he was in the mechanical engineering program. I was like, wow, that's really cool. So in my freshman year, I took a seminar. It was a one-credit seminar that everyone had to take. It's like, oh, what major do you want to do? Genius. Every college should have that. Okay. Well, the engineering school had it at Rutgers, and every week what they did was there's a specific degree that you can get, and that's what they showed you. There were, so the week of the mechanical engineer, they came and they blew me away. They were showing me engines. They were showing me rockets. They were showing me FBA models, which means finite element analysis. So it was a cool color contours. I didn't know what it was at the time. It just looked cool. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And then the next week was civil engineering, and I was really excited because I wanted to be a civil mm -hmm. engineer. And I got there, and the guy didn't show up. Wow. And so 15 minutes went by, and they were like, okay, you can all go. Class dismissed. So I left without any information about civil engineering. And I didn't do any research, so I was just like, okay, I want to be a mechanical aerospace engineer. So that's how I chose it. Wow. So it kind of just fell into your lap. You didn't even really plan for it. Nope. Wow. Which happens more often than people think. I think we're realizing on this podcast, it's like you can, sometimes people have no plan that falls into their lap. Sometimes you have a plan and plans change. Yeah. One thing I knew is that I love to create things. Right. You know, mm -hmm. that's, so I knew I wanted to go into a creative field. How did you know that? Were you doing that as a kid, as a teenager? I mean, I, I fell into you know some stereotypes. I was good at math. I, I liked you know the sciences more than English. Like you know, to this day, my reading comprehension level is still not that high. You know, <laughs> it's a little embarrassing actually. Um, so you know, I just knew that I wanted to create something. I played with Legos. Not that that matters. You don't have to play with Legos to be an engineer. 
Um, so a lot of people always like associate those two things together. Oh, you like Legos? Go be an engineer. Because you're you're creating something mm-hmm. and you're doing something, even though it's according to a manual, there's still some free element of creation, right? You can place the pieces where you want. You can actually change the design. If you want a whole part of it, it can be different. Mm-hmm. You can just buy the regular Legos and build a whole world around it. Or you can just buy just the creative Legos and build something of your own. Mm-hmm. It's like playing, have you ever played Minecraft? No. It's basically people just build. They just give you building blocks and you just build things. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And you could use your creativity however you want. Now, in reality, outside of a game, when you want to create something, it's got to be functional, right? If it's not functional, it's going to fall apart immediately. Mm -hmm. So you can't just create something without knowing how to create it. It's not enough to just know what the building blocks are. You have to know how to use them properly. Mm -hmm. Something that I love that you just brought up is that a lot of times we think that video games or like the games that we play don't really matter in terms of our life. It's kind of just like a leisure, but the games that you are attracted to kind of do tell you something about your tendencies. I don't think I would like something like that. And I'm not a very hands-on designing type person and I have no visual abilities whatsoever. So I wouldn't know how to start with that. So it's just interesting. Like I like more strategy games and that kind of tells me a little bit something about myself. So it's sometimes it's, it's helpful to look at what your leisure activities are and learn from that doesn't always have to be one-to-one like lego equals engineer but at least right. gives you a sense of what your tendencies are absolutely and to this day i, I think i still have my cd of roller coaster tycoon 2 you know that well, i used know. to play it all the time <laughs> build the roller coasters make a park mm-hmm. so tell us a little bit about your day-to-day i know it's probably a little bit technical but like what type of work are you doing on any given day so I, i'm in a field of research and design so i, I get to do many hats. I get to prototype a new product. I get to go about testing that prototype once I build it, doing the design changes with the team. It's a lot of team-based work. Um, and then asking the customer maybe what they like, didn't like about it, maybe if we can get it out to them. Um, maybe doing some testing with them, building test platforms. That's a whole other sect of engineering. You know, you got to build and validate your testing platforms. And then there's a whole other section, which is going to manufacturing and production. Once you've solidified your product and you've validated the product, um, so that gets into a lot of uh, statistical and economical engineering, which all of which fall under uh, our department and research and development. Mm-hmm. So. so- specifically what are you researching like testing the prototypes like are you i don't know i'm a little bit just give us a little bit more sure sure so again i designed pressure sensors um i'm going to say something about the type of design it's uh basically a lot of people think semiconductors are just in computers Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not true the fabrication process needed for a computer chip is the same for making a small sensing chip um, so when I said micro, when I said electromechanical, we're making small parts in a certain fabrication, um, and that small part gets integrated into a larger packaging. But that that small part is the element that does the sensing in the environment. So what you have to do is you kind of have to research, you know, the certain parameters that will survive in certain conditions for the chip. Then you have to go to the packaging level that will interface with that environment and make sure that that whole build, because you've got a bunch of different materials that come together, a bunch of different geometries, that when they expand and contract, that they'll survive in that area and that they won't leak pressure and that they won't, um, you know, fail, basically, mm-hmm. uh, for a life cycle, that they won't fail under cyclical pressures or stresses. Um, and then what you do there is, okay, you take it from, you back that out and say, okay, the environment that it's sensing in, you know, what kind of, characteristics fall under those environments that are 
may be unique to that specific case. So you might have acoustics that come out that would distort your output. So, you don't, you know, just like this microphone, it hears my voice. But if you're in a room that has an echo, that's going to distort the sound that you hear. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be just like that, except in a much more scary kind of environment <laughs> that could blow up, you know? Right. <laughs> so you got to make sure that um, the packaging you design for is going to see the pressures in real time, realistically, and not be distorted. Because if it's distorted, then your whole system, your control system might be thrown off. Or if the engine is in a test cell, maybe you're not going to get the proper reading from uh, the combustion in that environment. And you might think that you need to redesign the engine. They use these sensors often to validate engines that they're going to build, let's say, onto a Boeing 737. Or in that case, it, you know, when Boeing was making jets, they had a, basically a program failure uh, where they didn't build in a redundant sensor in a certain location, and so it would drive the plane down when the sensor failed. And so they were trying to, the pilots were trying to pull up, but they couldn't pull up because the sensor kept pushing it down, and that strength that was built into the hardware was so strong that overrid the strength of the pilots that sometimes, you know, they wouldn't be able to pull the plane up in time. Wow. So is it up to you to kind of think of all the possible things that can go wrong or is there like a manual? There's, there's definitely some sort of manual that a, a bunch of engineers in the past have put together at your specific company. They have a ton of knowledge that you need to learn from your managers. You know, you don't walk in knowing, I walked in knowing nothing about sensors. Mm -hmm. I walked in just knowing engineering principles. I then had a mentor who taught me a ton about sensors, what they do at Coolite, and what the general sensor environment is like in that space, in that corporate environment. Um, so they have a ton of experience building these things. You've got to learn from your predecessors. You're not going to walk in and reinvent the wheel. You're going to walk in and you're going to have to learn a lot. Mm -hmm. And then after you learn a lot, you then have a team and you all kind of pull on your expertise, you're going to have material engineers on the same team, electrical engineers on the same team, mechanical engineers on the same team, and chemical engineers. You might all have to come together and talk about a certain problem that a sensor is having or a potential sensor is having and figure out how to make that sensor better or to make sure that it works in a certain environment. And then that team is also going to have to interface with the customer. The customer might want something else and they might tell you something else if you ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. So they give you as much information as they feel you need, but sometimes you need more information. It's not always so clear cut. You're in the real world. It's not like the problem is on a piece of paper written out for you by the teacher and you have all the information you need. Mm -hmm. So you got to kind of explore that with your team and it's definitely not a one-man job. Yeah. I want to touch on two things that you said. The first is that you're going to go into the job and you're going to have to learn on the job. Somebody's going to explain things to you. I also think that that's not unique to this field. People always think they're going to finish college or even graduate school. They're going to go into a job. They're going to know everything that they have to know and they're going to be able to figure everything out. It's not true. It gives you the building blocks to be able to learn what that company specifically wants from you. And that's okay. You should be excited about that. If you come in and know everything you already need to know, you're probably overqualified for that job. You should find a job where you can actually learn. And the other part that you said about the teamwork, and I know Avadia Harari also spoke about this in software engineering, it just seems like you really have to have good communication because you're speaking with so many different team members, then also the customer. You guys have to know how to speak each other's language and communicate everything to each other. Um, what other skills do you think are important to have 
aside from the actual engineering field, which we'll talk about in a second, but like those soft skills that you would need for this job. I think a lot of people need a little more patience, actually, because, you know, you're going to interface with people that maybe, like you said, don't have the best communication skills and you're not going to totally understand what they say or they won't totally understand what you say and you're going to have to explain yourself maybe once, maybe twice, maybe five times, you know. And they're going to have to explain themselves. And, you know, especially with a new team, if you're starting out at a new job, you got to make sure that, you know, not that you fit in well with the team, maybe socially, like that's important too, but that you can communicate and understand each other quicker and quicker as you get to know each other more. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to be able to communicate efficiently. Um, And I think that's, there's no course on that at an engineering school for sure. I mean, there are a lot of people that take communications classes because they think it's an easy A, but the truth is I wish I took a communications class because I walked in and I thought, hey, I'm doing engineering. I don't need to know how to be social, and it's not true. You've got to be able to not just talk to other engineers, then validate yourself for the business case side to some of the corporate that runs a company. You know, engineering is great and all. You know, people love science, but your business has to make money, and at the end of the day, you're not the engineers don't always run the company. The company's usually run by people who know the accounting behind it. So that's definitely something you got to get used to is like, okay, understand what product you're talking about, understand the motives the company would have to do it, and that you'd have to validate that motive to someone. Mm-hmm. Such a good point, and I love what you mentioned with the communications class because I've heard so many people say this. And on the other side, you have people saying, like, why am I taking all these dumb classes in school? Like, I wish I could just be in engineering school and only take engineering classes. But it really is important to to get skills in so many different areas, especially the people skills, I think, are very universal. Um, are there other classes that you would recommend taking in college? I mean, I did a math minor, and I didn't even finish it because I decided that if people saw that I was an engineer, they wouldn't care about the math minor, mm-hmm. which was somewhat true. <laughs> they didn't care. Um, but you know, if you're doing engineering, I would definitely recommend linear algebra, which isn't a required course in a lot of engineering schools, but the amount of programming you do, you know, you just kind of need that base understanding of what linear algebra is, um, and how it applies to, I mean, big data, right? You're going to be looking at a lot of big data. A lot of engineers don't, I mean, maybe Ovada knows this cause he's software, but a lot of mechanical engineers and electrical engineers in schooling, didn't do any type of uh, data analysis. They didn't do a lot of uh, big data cultivation. They didn't build databases. And that's something you might actually really need, especially in this field, because you need to look at data and learn from your data. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a big thing. That's good advice. Are there any tells other than maybe doing creative things, playing with Lego, maybe building furniture in your house, maybe at the high school level? could be courses. It could be leisure activities. That would say, okay, I'm a good fit for engineering and maybe even specifically mechanical engineering. Yeah, let me start with engineering because I think there's something really important about doing something that you love. And, you know, I was always into, you know, space movies. Again, it sounds silly, but I I love the idea of going to space. I love Star Wars. It's silly, again. It's nerdy, but I like those things like Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, you know, silly shows, a lot of Marvel shows. I have a ton of comic books. Not that that matters, but these stranger creative things that you can be more passionate about. I think it's very important that anyone who's looking to do engineering is passionate about the subject because you're going to be doing a lot of difficult, challenging mental work, and you may not get paid as much as someone who is doing 
not as hard of a job in a business field. And maybe even they're just a trader and they just kind of went to business school. They don't love the job, but they're making more than you. And you got to accept the fact that, yes, you're a smart person. And yes, you could make more money doing something else. But do you want to do something else? Are you going to like that thing? And if the answer is no, but you love, you know, that that idea of building something, creating something, seeing your work do something like fly someone across the country or, you know, test engines, you know, play with toys like that. Uh, even if it's just like in a lab setting where you're playing with, you know, an oscilloscope, you know, like you got to actually care about what you do. You got to enjoy it. You got to be passionate about it because it can be really grueling. You could put in, you know, 60 to 70 hour a week sometimes. I'm not saying it's always like that, but sometimes, you know, if it's mission critical for what you're doing, you're going to be working hard and you got to remember that, you know, if you're going to do the field that you better like it because if you don't like it, you're probably not going to want to stay in it. You'll probably have gotten a degree and say, well, let me pivot to business, right. which a lot of people do. Oh, really? Yeah. They go to consulting. Oh, cool. So let's start talking about the nitty gritty of that. First of all, what is, it's probably not an average, but what's, what would be a good number to say is a starting salary for Specifically, I guess, aerospace engineering. Uh, nowadays, I'd say probably closer to 70000 Uh Starting salary is uh, average. Um, but you, it can be anywhere from sixty to eighty-five. Typically, depends which coast you're on. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. Um, what are the typical hours? Starting job depends where you are. Uh, if you're in a manufacturing company, you'll have a shift, typically, that you have to be there for. Sometimes that's one shift, sometimes that's two shifts, depends how big your team is. It can be anywhere from 40 hours a week, which I have seen people work 40 hours a week, to you know 80 hours a week, depending on what company you get into and what the expectation is of you. Um, and I think that's really important to know what kind of company you're going into. When you apply for a job, um, you got to realize you're not just applying for a job, you're applying to be a part of the company. You're applying to be um, a member of a team that all believes in the same thing. They all believe the company slogan. They all believe the company motto. You know, it's it's not just uh, a company to a lot of these engineers. They want to see that you're going to care about what you're doing. So I think a lot of uh, that criteria for hiring someone, they try to gauge what your real interest would be in it, not just your technical skills. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to kind of, they, they want to get a sense that you want to be there. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to be working 80 hours a week for 70, 85K in the beginning, I'm assuming either it's what you said before, you really have to love it and be super passionate, or is there like growth potential in the field that people should be looking towards? Something that someone has to be very almost pointed about when they're looking for a job is maybe going to a company that start at a company that's public. Like Lockheed Martin is a public company. They grow, I would say, at least 30% every five years, at least. I mean, the last five years have been a little crazy for every company, but you know, when you go to a company, you, you want to make sure that the company is growing. If the company is growing, if they like you within six to 12 months, you're already engineered too. And a lot of these places will have a growth outline for you ready to go when you sign. Mm-hmm. Say, look, if we like you, you get this pay raise and this promotion within a year or six months. And then every year we bump you up another, let's say $10,000. So by the time you're third year, even if you started at 70K, you might be making 100, 110. Right. That's great. So I think that's something else in general really nice about engineering is it's a very clear-cut path. I mean, from the second you start college, 
you're in an engineering school, you're taking specific courses, you're going towards a specific job, and then even within that job, there's like set steps, which is really great for somebody who likes the stability and like reassurance that they have a path. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that something that drew you to the field? No, I didn't think mm-hmm. about it. I didn't really look at the job market. I just kind of went to school and didn't, it was a little blindsided of me, but honestly, I was enjoying what I was learning. I was enjoying, you know, the project I have to do for the capstone and, you know, I was liking the course material and I didn't really think about how it would apply to the real world. I just kind of kept going. Mm-hmm. Which is also fine. I think a lot of people do that too and they just end up where they end up and it's nice. But if you're like listening to this podcast, you're a little bit more informed, so that's nice. You also actually went to graduate school. I did. Tell us a little bit about that. So I didn't do the conventional route. I actually went to work first. Um, I took a little longer to find the job because I wanted to find the right job. And it didn't pay the most, but one of the interview questions I asked was, do you sponsor a master's program or master's degrees or further education? And the answer from this company was, yes, we do. We actually promote it very strongly within the company. And I knew immediately that that's something I wanted to be a part of because they're investing not just in the company for to have you as an employee, but they're investing in you to be a good employee and for you to want to be there. Mm-hmm. So it was something that motivated me. So once I got that job, I decided, okay, let me take full advantage of this. Let me go get my master's. Um, and I started out, I met you at Columbia mm-hmm. again. Um, you know, we knew each other from deal in the summers, but um, I think, you know, we saw each other in school and I decided to do Columbia because a lot of the people at the company I was working at were at Columbia at the time, um, and it was being reimbursed at that time. Uh, and it was, you know, for six credits, it was like twelve thousand dollars. So Ridiculous. It, was, it was a lot. <laughs> but I was like, okay, well, it's getting paid for me, so might as well tough it out at a better school. That changed a little bit, and I think this is a little specific to my situation, so I don't really have to get into it much. Um, but the tuition reimbursement program changed shortly after I started there, about a year after. And so to reduce costs and kind of save myself a headache, I went back to Rutgers, which was in-state. And to be honest, education, when people think like, oh, I got to go to the best school, the truth is in engineering, it's all the same. Um, I learned at Columbia the teachers weren't any better. Um, they're research professors, they're tier two professors, which means that the school is paying them to be a professor there for their research because they're very smart people and do very good research. And the students benefit from doing research with them, which is usually more towards graduate graduate level or um, senior level of your, of your undergrad. Um, but when it comes to learning in a class, you're getting the same education if you go to a state school. Mm-hmm. That's good. good advice for anything. I, I found the same. When I went from like a CUNY school to Ivy League school, I didn't really find such a difference. It's nice to be surrounded, I guess, by people who are a little bit more motivated. But I guess at a graduate level, everybody's really motivated. So it's kind of the same thing. Is graduate school something that you would recommend even if they're not reimbursing? Is it something that you would say, no, it's so important that you should find a company that will reimburse it for you? I think it depends on what path you want to do. Like if you're in undergraduate engineering and you want to do more and you want to learn more engineering – Um, I think there's definitely pay raise associated with having a higher level degree. So it's from the money case, it definitely works if you want to stay in field. Uh, If you're going to look to become a consultant, I think learn as much of the business side as you can and then try to pivot. No need for a master's degree Um, because then, you know, the money doesn't 
pay out in that scenario. Um, and I think if you love what you do and you want to be more engaged in the field um, and learn from professors at a certain school and you have someone in mind that you want to learn with and that you think that they'll teach you what you need to know to build something in the future that maybe you want to build or research that you want to do at the university that might lead to IP, like a patent. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important for a lot of people who want to start their own companies, especially from an engineering degree. Um, yeah, I would say it's worth it in the case of moving up in the corporate ladder at a engineering firm or if you wanted to develop your own IP. Mm-hmm. Are those the three routes that people usually take with the degree or is there, are there more? It's usually a consultant um, or engineer or entrepreneur, mm-hmm. typically. Some people will go and get their MBA so that they can do management and engineering, which is a big route as well. Um, the problem is it doesn't pay out as much as finance and you end up paying about 200 grand if you go to a good school for an MBA um, and your salary might be 150 to 250. Mm-hmm. So it might take you a long time to pay that back. Right. Okay, good advice. One thing that I was thinking about as you were speaking is you're creating a product sort of, but you're working on it for so long until you finally see that product. So how do you keep yourself motivated on the day-to-day when you're not actually getting that reinforcement from the product for potentially years? So I think this is aerospace specific because there are a lot of regulations that fall for uh, the FAA and a lot of the different um, ISO requirements required for manufacturing the parts. Um, There's ITAR regulations, which is uh, international exchange of arms regulations from the government. So when you're talking about my field, which is like, you know, you might take you four or five years to get a product out there. That's not always the timeline. It could be one year, it could be two years. Um, when it's a bit more advanced and a bit more new to the field, it might take a little bit longer. Something that keeps me motivated is the fact that that's not the only project I'm working on. I work on a bunch of different projects in parallel. Um, but, you know, seeing it get to a benchmark engine test and for me to support that, that was a big thing. You know, like every time I got more data from a vendor and, you know, we were able to, to publish that and show other customers what we're capable of doing, you know, that was not only a big step for the company, but a big step for me. You can, you know, Google someone's name now and find uh, a piece of paper that has a lot of scientific information about it. And if you're not in the field, you don't really care. But if you're in the field, you, you find that interesting, you know, mm-hmm. and it helps you not just network, but build your resume. Mm-hmm. Right. So is this having like this ever-changing environment where you're wearing multiple hats and doing multiple projects in parallel, is that unique to the job that you chose or is that, you know, really what aerospace engineering is like? I think if you're doing research and development at any aerospace or even mechanical environment, that's what you're going to be doing a lot of different things and interfacing with a lot of different teams to make sure that you can help them integrate into manufacturing, that you can give them drawings that are close enough to... um, something that they can manufacture because students actually in school don't learn how to do 2D drawings, which is very important for manufacturing. Most students only learn 3D and 3D assemblies and then they go out to the field and they're like, well, okay, manufacture this. And it's like, well, I don't know how to tolerance. (laughs) You got to learn how to tolerance. You know, it's an important skill that isn't taught in school. And that's something that's actually, I, I don't know how it's such an oversight in the curriculum, but most curriculums won't have that course offered as part of the main Um, but I think usually when you're looking at a customer product that isn't, that's more consumer product, like let's say you're looking at, um, 
a water bottle. You know, whoever designed the water bottle, they found plastic injected molding. They found the way that they wanted to make the bottle shape, how thick they wanted to make it, if they could reproduce it a bunch of times. They designed the cap, and that was it. You know, it was took maybe three months to design and another three months to implement, and that was it. That was their project. And maybe they do some quick routine checkups on it. You know, they'll take a patch of the bottles and do a certain test on it to make sure that they're still being produced to the same standard that they started with, which changes sometimes, and that's important too, but it doesn't take up as much as their time anymore. Mm -hmm. So what is that called? What part of mechanical engineering is that? Uh, It's statistical approach. It's more standard uh, processing engineering. Mm -hmm. So that's still mechanical engineering, but it could also be materials, it could also be packaging, it could also be industrial engineering. Like You just kind of have to find if that's something you want to do. A lot of engineers will go cross-field. Um, so if you're an electrical engineer, you might end up with a job in computer engineering. If you're a mechanical engineer, you might end up with a job in electrical engineering if you're good enough at it. Um, you might end up with a job. I know Jesse Antipi ended up with a job from industrial engineering to computer scientist. He totally pivoted. So a lot of people, when they see that you're an engineer, they know that you have the STEM background, and as long as you have a passion for the job you're looking for, you can pivot into a lot of different STEM fields. Got it. So as long as you have that like math, science mind, and you have that basis, you can kind of go within the field anywhere you want. If you start with aerospace and you realize it's not for you, you're not as passionate, you can pivot. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. What are, what are some of the other things you considered in the field? Uh, I definitely considered getting my professional engineer's license. Um, what is it's, that? Okay, so that is like the CPA for accountants to engineering. Right, you take a bunch of tests. And take a bunch of tests, you get a degree, and a lot of it is done for public projects. So to do industrial engineering, most people need to um, have gone through civil engineering school. Like if you want to build a bridge or if you want mm-hmm. to build a building, you want to either go to school for that or if you did mechanical like me, you then can get a master's in it or you can get a, a, you know, a professional engineer's license with this degree and you'll learn everything you need to learn for that field in studying for that exam. Mm-hmm. And you have all the background you need because you did a lot of the basic engineering courses and then you just have to put some more material on top of that to figure out, okay, well, it just branches off from this section of my material that I learned. That I didn't learn mechanical engineering because it didn't focus on that, but I can learn it on my own because I know this background information. So there are a bunch of different professional engineer exams that you can take, and that'll kind of validate you in that field. So There's so much you could do with this degree. It's so There's a lot you can yeah. do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... I, we love breaking stereotypes here on the podcast. I think we already broke a few with rocket scientists, but what do you think is like the biggest stereotype associated with your field? And let's break it. Hmm. Man, they're also true though. <laughs> like what? <laughs> you know, a lot of people that you meet in engineering were kind of into similar things as a kid. You know, they were into not to, to say that the stereotypes are always true, but you know, a lot of kids were into, you know, the, the nerdier toys or the nerdier genres that people kind of say like, ah, that kid's going to be an engineer. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not that wrong. Does everybody wear glasses? Many people wear glasses, <laughs> but that's, that has nothing to do with eyesight and engineering. It just goes along with the stereotyping, you know, like they're pushing glasses. I mean, I'm wearing glasses, glasses right now. I do this often, so. Right. Okay, so they're mostly true, other than maybe them being just, like, super nerdy. I don't think you're super nerdy. I don't think I'm super nerdy. I think I I 
better social skills than many other engineers out there. But, um, you know, there are people who um, would say that all engineers have very little social skills. I don't think that's true. I've met many engineers who actually are very fit. They're very into fitness. Um, that's actually a very big stereotype that's just totally unknown is that the millennial engineer is actually really in shape. So when I stand next to some of them, I kind of feel like I should hit the gym sometimes. <laughs> I might have been out of shape, so. I'm not in shape. <laughs> you, you don't have your dad bod quite yet. <laughs> some would argue. Truth is, it's a good question. Um, how does work-life balance come into play? Michael just had a beautiful baby boy, so. I did. Uh, believe it or not, I was allowed to take a paternity leave, which Maybe. is something new to this era and to the young people working these days. Just know that your employer in New Jersey or in New York is legally obliged by law to give you that leave. So men, women take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you feel like it is like with that 80 hour work, does it end up like stemming to a place where you could have work-life balance? Um, if somebody is really like worried about the work-life balance, is this a field that you tell them to go into? Cause I know it's so heavily male dominated. I wonder if that's part of the reason. No, that I wouldn't say that's part of the reason. Uh, to be honest, when I first started working, maybe I was working 50-hour weeks. Not not that crazy. And after a year or two, it was down to a regular 40-hour week. Um, and, you know, I, I started managing other engineers. And it's, it's not at all like finance. They're not going to work you that hard at some firms. At other firms, like I said, it just depends on your shift, right? If you're in a manufacturing role, there are three shifts. There's the morning shift, the day shift, and the night shift. Mm-hmm. And to meet some orders, they have to manufacture almost 24 hours. Not the full 24 hours. They have some shutdown period. But it's, you know, some some plants manufacture for 16 hours. Now, you're not going to work a 16-hour day most of the time. But if someone's on vacation and you have to fill in for them or someone has to fill in for them, maybe you alternate with someone else on the team, you might end up working a few extra hours. Um Listen, again, you, you kind of have to like what you do uh, with any field, not just this field. Because mm-hmm. um, odds are, if you're ever going to make money in this world, you're going to have to put in your, your due share at mm-hmm. some point. Some point or another, it doesn't matter how old you are, but there's always – you're not going out into the work environment thinking, hey, I'm going to work as little as possible. That's not how you get things done. You know, you kind of have to go in with the mindset like – I want to make a difference in this world. I want to make a difference, not just in this company, but I want the work that I do to affect the world in a better way than it was left before. That's great. And I think a lot of people, when they think of that, they think they have to be in like this social field, but it's nice that you're able to find that meaning, you know, with the, with the work that you're doing also. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, parts that we make go on, like you said, rockets. I mean, I always love the idea of, you know, space travel, even just launching satellites out into orbit. Like you got to think of all the companies that do that and be like, Hmm, what do all those satellites do? Right. You're getting on that company. Now, you know, <laughs> right. Are you allowed to tell us what they do? I, I, I can't, I don't, I don't make satellites. All right. Yeah. I contract with people that make satellites. Mm-hmm. But... Gotcha. Okay. So end us off with some advice for people who are thinking about the field or want to go into the field. Um, if you're going to go into the aerospace field, many of the higher paying jobs and many of the more interesting jobs are on the West Coast. So be ready to go across country. And if you're not ready to do that, maybe don't do aerospace. 
Yeah, Michael has some fun news for us. You want to drop it on the pot? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I will be going to California in July. I start a job at SpaceX uh, this July. Casual. Yeah. <laughs> Very exciting. I've been at where I was for about six years. Um, during that time, many of my friends have been in either two or even three jobs. They've switched a lot. I like what I did from the day I started there. So I stayed there maybe longer than some would say I should have. But um, the truth is, you know, when you become more expert in a field, it can help you go vertical when you're changing jobs. And I think that's very important to know, not just for this field, for any field, is that you don't want to become the guy that's at a company maybe forever because you might lose out on maybe more interesting experiences, maybe more work that might give you more opportunity to grow, to grow with your family, to grow with the company, um, and maybe just more work in general that might be more variance that you know might be interesting to learn something new. And you always want to be learning something new. I actually it took me five years to finish my degree. I don't know if anyone has ever worked during that period where they also went to school like I did, but I did nighttime school, and it took me five years. So just... Uh, it was a 30 degree, 30 credit degree uh, master's. So just <laughs> Some people did it in mind. one year, you did it in five. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but again, you know, if, if you're planning on staying at one place, you can kind of become an expert at that one thing and then move vertically from there um, into a, the same field that maybe does something a little bit different, but, you know, they need that expert. And so they'll pay you more to be there. And you can't tell us anything about SpaceX because it's very proprietary, but we're very excited for you. I can tell you I'm still making sensors. I'll be a sensor development engineer. That's all I'm glad to tell us. That's what I'm glad to tell you. <laughs> all right, Michael, thank you so much for being on. It's such a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks, Carol. Thank you guys for joining this episode of What the Heck Do You Do? We really hope you enjoyed and that you will rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But more importantly, if you have a job or career that people just don't understand, please email us at whattheheckdoyoudo at gmail.com with your job title and a quick description of what the heck you do. Until next time.